Well, today's text in 1 Peter 3.15 is about witnessing, soul winning, personal evangelism, or whatever else you may be accustomed to calling it. And we all know that Christians are called to this, and yet it is no secret that many Christians find this difficult. We are often intimidated by our own lack of confidence. We're sometimes confused by differing styles and methodologies of evangelism, which are advocated by various Christian leaders. And sometimes we are sensitive to those who have been harmed by the ineptitude of others, and we do not want to repeat their mistake. And so it's good, therefore, that as we move along in our preaching series through the book of 1 Peter, we find in 1 Peter 3.15 some practical help for effective witnessing, and we can boil down what Peter says into three words. If God will help us to understand them, they are, number one, courage, two, preparation, and three, courtesy. Courage, preparation, and courtesy. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. And always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. Courage. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. Lack of courage is undoubtedly one of the biggest obstacles to our bearing witness in the world in which we live, even though we know we should and we desire to do so. And Peter helps us with this when he tells us how to find courage, true God-given courage, not psychological courage, not working up some kind of courage born out of human energy, but truly spiritual courage. It is the context that makes this opening statement in our text a word about courage, because taken by itself you might not see that. But when we notice, first of all, the opening conjunction, but, and then later when we'll recognize the quotation that he is citing here, or at least the passage in Isaiah that he is alluding to, it becomes very clear that courage is exactly what Peter is talking about. The opening conjunction, but, is both a word of connection as well as a word of contrast. And it connects us back into what Peter has said before, but it contrasts what he has said most recently in the immediate context. And you recall that in verse 13, Peter told us that persecution is not the normal state of affairs for the children of God. But he backed that up immediately in verse 14 to remind us that persecution is always a very real possibility. And though genuine persecution is not something that all of God's people, even the majority of God's people, are going to live with constantly, all of us probably will experience some form of persecution at times throughout our life, and some of God's children are going to suffer persecution throughout most of their lives, and we don't ever know exactly what God has appointed for us, and so we need to be ready for persecution should it come and realize that it is not something that is outside the control of God or outside of his divine appointment. But he tells us in the face of persecution not to be afraid. And that's the last part of verse 14. He says, and do not be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled. 
And as you recall, he is quoting here from Isaiah chapter 8 and verse 12, the last part of the verse, which reads in my Bible, nor be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled. And Peter takes that text and he quotes it here to his readers. And he says, in spite of the persecution that you may very well be called upon to endure, don't be afraid. Well, it's one thing to say don't be afraid, but now exactly how do you accomplish that is the question. And of course, that's what our text today begins by telling us, because that first phrase of verse 15 tells us the contrast with being afraid, the alternative to being afraid. Do not be afraid of their threats. Do not be troubled. But here's what you do. Sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. In other words, the alternative to being afraid is to focus your attention, your affections, your faith, your trust upon God Almighty until the fear is driven out of your heart. When you focus your attention upon circumstances, upon enemies, upon critics, upon persecutors, then you will be afraid. You are human after all. But when you focus your attention upon your heavenly Father who loves you and who has all power and all wisdom and is able to do anything and has made many promises to his children, then you do not need to be afraid. So instead of being afraid, sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. And this becomes even more clear when you realize that the wording of verse 15, sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, is actually a a, um, summary, a condensation, even a rewording of the next verse in Isaiah chapter 8. He said it's verse 13. Verse 12, you remember, he just quoted almost word for word in the Septuagint version of that text. And it says, nor be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled. But verse 13 goes on to say, the Lord of hosts, him you shall hallow. Let him be your fear. Let him be your dread. And do you see the reflection of that? He kind of condenses that together into one short verse. But he is telling us the content of the next verse, which Isaiah has already given us the alternative to being afraid. And he has already told us that the key to that is to consecrate, to hallow the Lord God in your heart, to be reverentially fearful before God. Not abjectly fearful, but to have the right kind of reverential fear toward God, and that will keep you from having the kind of timidity and fear that we are so prone to have toward men. And so both the conjunction and the Old Testament allusion are what tell us that this phrase talks about courage. And so looking now more closely at this injunction, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, what is he telling us? And we have to understand three words and phrases here. Number one, sanctify. Number two, the Lord God. And number three, in your hearts. And when you've got that, you've got the phrase. And so first of all, he tells us to sanctify the Lord God in our hearts. It's a word that means to make holy or to set apart or to consecrate. Now, usually it's used of what God does to men. And when God sanctifies us, he sets us apart unto himself. He consecrates us unto himself. And in the process, he makes us holy. 
We talk about progressive sanctification in the lives of believers. And that is the ongoing process of continually conforming God's children into the likeness of Jesus Christ, making us ever more like Him, meaning ever more holy, ever more committed to doing the Father's will, ever more like Christ in His attitudes and characteristics. And that's what it means when God is sanctifying us. But when we are sanctifying God, it means that we are regarding Him as holy. We are setting Him apart in our hearts and acknowledging that He is holy. We are sanctifying Him in that sense, that we are consecrating ourselves to Him. We're consecrating Him to our heart's affections and giving ourselves wholly and unreservedly unto Him. We are making Him the supreme object of our reverence, our affection. We recognize that He is free from all defect, from all error, that He is the one, the supreme one, who is worthy of all of our worship and honor and praise and obedience and submission. And that's what it means to sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. And so when fear strikes you, this is what you do. You redouble your efforts to focus upon the greatness of God, the goodness of God, the attributes of God, and focus upon surrendering yourself afresh to Him. Sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. That second phrase, the Lord God, deserves our attention because you need to be aware that in most manuscripts this says the Lord Christ, or in some translations it's turned around and says Christ as Lord. And that is even more instructive than the phrase that I have in my manuscript. Because it identifies exactly what person of the Godhead we are thinking about. And it tells us that our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, who died on the cross and shed his blood for our salvation, is also the eternal sovereign God who has all power, all might, all wisdom, all majesty. And he is the one, therefore, that we are to sanctify in our hearts, not as if we can sanctify Christ the Son and not sanctify God the Father. Of course, when you sanctify God, you are sanctifying the triune Godhead. But it is good for a moment to focus upon Christ, the second person of the Trinity, and to realize that he is our Savior and we are his, his sheep, we are his followers, we are, we are those who have been bought and purchased by his blood, and we are to continually make him Lord. He is Lord. Someone has said, in one sense, you can't make him Lord. God has already done that, and that, of course, is true. But we do need to continually reaffirm our commitment to him as Lord, not just as Savior, but as Lord. We are to sanctify, we are to set apart Jesus Christ as Lord. It's interesting that in the Old Testament text that Peter is alluding to here, Isaiah 8.13. It talks about God in terms of Jehovah. I read that for you a moment ago. It says, the Lord of hosts, him you shall hallow. Let him be your fear. Let him be your dread. The Lord of hosts. And that in the Hebrew is Yahweh, Jehovah. And in the Septuagint translation, it is Kurios, Lord. Translating the Hebrew, Yahweh. And now, 
By this phrase, Peter makes it clear that Jesus Christ is Jehovah. He is Yahweh. He is the God of the Old Testament. He is the God of the burning bush. He is Jehovah, the God who is, the great I Am. And so we are to sanctify Christ as Lord in our hearts. And we are to submit ourselves, therefore, to His sovereign authority. And we are to do this, we are told, in our hearts, in our inner self, the heart that wraps up into one, the intellect, the emotions, the will of the inner man, the inner core of our being. And we are to sanctify Christ as Lord, first of all, in our mind, in our thoughts, because many times the terms heart and mind are synonymous in the Bible, as you know. And so, first of all, we have to wrap our mind around the truth that Jesus Christ is indeed sovereign Lord. But there's also an emotional element. We are to give ourselves to Him. We are to love the Lord our God with all of our heart and soul and mind and strength. And to love the Lord our God that way is, of course, to love Jesus Christ that way. So we are to sanctify Christ as Lord in our hearts. And, of course, it has the volitional element. We are to deliberately and purposefully do this, surrender ourselves to this, submit ourselves to this, remind us of these truths, and continually apply this truth to our lives. For some, it may be a matter of coming to a better understanding of who Christ is, a better understanding of the fullness of the sovereignty of God as he's presented to us in Scripture, and that would help you a great deal. Many who are timid and fearful are such because they don't really understand the sovereignty of God. They believe it in part, but not in whole. They believe that he's sovereign in certain areas, but not in all areas. And we need to come to understand the complete and full sovereignty of God Yes, the complete and full sovereignty of Jesus Christ, the Lord. But for others, it's not so much a matter of understanding. It's a matter of consistently applying the knowledge that we have. We can know these things, having apprehended them in our understanding, but still may not be applying them to every area of our life. And so we are to sanctify Christ as Lord in our hearts, in our affections, in our will, in the decisions that we make, in the words that we speak. They all ought to be saturated in this truth that Jesus Christ is Lord, and this will give us the courage that we need. In short, what we need is deep-seated confidence that Christ alone controls all events. A deep-seated confidence that Christ alone controls all events. There are many secondary factors that are at work all around us. There are many secondary causes and effects that are going on around us, but we need to trace it all back to the beginning and continually remind ourselves that Jesus Christ alone is in total control of every event in the world, yea, every event in my life. And I therefore yield myself to Him afresh and anew. 
And that's what it means to sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. Peter understood both failure and success in regard to courage and sanctifying Christ as Lord. No doubt as he was penning these words, he thought about the time that he did not have the courage to own Christ as Lord when that little maid questioned him around the fire, warming himself at the trial of Jesus, and she asked him if he was not a disciple of Christ, and his courage left him, and he denied that he knew the Lord because he was not sanctifying the Lord as Christ in his heart at that moment, but was rather focusing upon the circumstances and the dread and the fear and the apprehension of what might happen to him if they decided to take him and do to him what they were doing to Jesus. And yet throughout the book of Acts, we read of many instances where Peter was courageous and bold for the Lord Jesus Christ, how he stood up on the day of Pentecost and preached to that multitude and how God blessed it, how often he stood before the authorities, the Sanhedrin, the arresting officers, and did not back down one inch. He demonstrated incredible courage in the face of difficulty and trial and persecution. And what is the secret, Peter? What made the difference between the trial of Jesus when you denied the Lord and these many instances when you boldly proclaimed Christ and had the courage to witness for him? And he says, I'm telling you what the difference is. It's right here. Don't be afraid, but instead sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts continually and always, and you will be prepared to speak as you ought to speak in that day. And so we must live daily in the light of Christ's lordship, and we must view every circumstance in the, Christ of, in the light of Christ's lordship. And this will give us the courage we need to be a good witness. And so the first key to effective witnessing is courage. If we don't have the courage to speak, it doesn't matter how much we know. We've got to have the courage to speak when we ought to speak. And this is how we shall obtain that courage. But then secondly, there's preparation. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and always be ready to give defense, a defense, to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you. Always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you. Now, some have thought that our text this morning is applicable only to court situations, to a formal trial when you're hauled before the authorities and are required to give an account. And the fact of the matter is that that is not what this text is speaking about. And that will become more clear, I think, as we move along. But Peter is not talking about these kinds of extraordinary situations but he is specifically talking about ordinary situations. One way we can know that is by contrasting what Peter says with what Christ said in Matthew 10:19 when he was talking about a formal court trial. He said in verse 18, You will be brought before governors and kings for my name's sake as a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. But when they deliver you up, do not worry about how or what you should speak, for it shall be given to you in that hour what you should speak. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father who speaks in you. And our Lord said in those court situations, there's really no way to prepare. 
except just be a a faithful follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. But you really can't prepare yourself ahead of time for what you're going to speak because you really don't know what twists and turns might might occur in this court situation. So, So just give your life to God afresh. Trust Him to help you in this situation. Wait for whatever the Lord brings to come and trust Him to give you the words in that day. Formal trial situations are not the ones that we are specifically to prepare for, but it is more the ordinary, everyday occasions of life that we are to prepare for. Always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. So let's look at these instructions that Peter gives us, and I think there are at least four elements that we need to consider He tells us, number one, that we should have a constant desire to witness. Number two, we must learn to have knowledgeable articulation. Number three, there must be an alert flexibility. And number four, a godly optimism. First of all, constant desire. Always be ready. Always be ready. We are not to be primarily defensive. Yes, there will come attacks and persecutions upon the people of God, and we are not to fear. That's the defensive posture. Don't be afraid when they come at you in this way. But there's more than that. We should actually seize the day. We should recognize an opportunity. We should be ready to go on the offensive, not just to be on the defensive when these kinds of situations arise. And interestingly, Peter is telling us that we are not necessarily to speak indiscriminately, but reflexively. That is, we respond to others. Now, I don't think Peter is suggesting here that we should never initiate a witness for the Lord. I'm confident that's not what he's saying. There are other scriptures that would encourage us to do exactly that. But he is telling us that the best opportunities and the most fruitful areas of witness are the ones where we respond to a situation that God develops, a door that God opens, an opportunity that God creates, and we need to be able to recognize it and ready to take advantage of it, always being ready. Peter is telling us that we need to view accusations and criticisms as evangelistic opportunities. So many times we are so much on the defensive and we are so filled with human fear that it doesn't even occur to us that this could be turned into an evangelistic opportunity for the Lord. But Peter is suggesting that's exactly what we ought to do. That's exactly how we ought to think. That's one of the reasons why we need to keep the Lord God always set apart in our hearts so that we are not filled with fear and set off balance and can only think defensively and think about our own safety and well-being and comfort, but rather recognize that this may be a wonderful God-appointed opportunity to witness for the Lord Jesus Christ, if we will but see it and seize it. Because such opportunities come unexpectedly, and therefore we have to always be prepared. 
constant desire, constant readiness. We ought to pray every morning that God will give us opportunities to witness. We need to be looking for opportunities all throughout the day and and try to recognize those openings that God creates for us. We need to be always ready. Carry with us a constant desire to be a faithful witness for the Lord Jesus Christ. Rather than, as we so often are, unprepared, the opportunity comes, it develops quickly, we aren't prepared, it passes, we recognize it in retrospect, and we say, oh, I wish. Maybe I'm the only one who's ever done that. But I suspect that probably has happened to all of us, and probably more than once. I wish. I wish I had thought. I wish I had been prepared. I wish I had been been ready to recognize and seize that opportunity. It came. It went. It's gone. Always ready. But also, this, this preparation not only involves a ready will, a ready mind, a ready desire... But it involves knowledgeable articulation. We need to be ready to give a defense. To give a defense. To give an apology is the Greek word. And the English word apology comes from it. But not apology as we normally think about it today. That is saying, I'm sorry, please excuse me. But the more technical word apologetics is closer to what we have in mind here. And apologetics is the area of learning how to defend the faith, how to remove misconceptions and criticisms, and to answer objections. And that fits very well into the context of what Peter's talking about here, because he is talking about accusations and criticisms and objections. And he says, we need to be ready to make a defense. We need to be apologetics. We need to be prepared to remove those misunderstandings and answer those objections and to confront those criticisms when they come to us, as they often will. Some of you listen to a radio program that comes on in the late afternoon over WTRU. And the host is Hank Hanegraaff, and it's called The Bible Answer Man. And I would recommend that to you as an excellent source to learn how to answer objections and criticisms. That's a, an ongoing daily lesson in Christian apologetics. And I would say that he's on right He's on target. He's right according to my understanding of God's Word, at least 90 or 95% of the time. And uh, the things that aren't, then you can find your own answer, a different answer from the one that he um, suggests. We should always be students of God's Word. But he has some, some wonderful understanding and is a good way of answering objections. And that's his, his uh, primary emphasis, and we can learn a lot from a ministry, a program like that. So we are to give a defense, an apology. We are to be able to answer objections. And also this word reason points in the same direction. 
He says, always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason. And that word reason is the Greek word logos, which means a word or a message. And here the emphasis is more upon content than it is upon verbal speech, although he's talking about verbal speech. But if he wanted us to think primarily about the act of speaking, he probably would have used the Greek word laleo. But here is the Greek word logos. He's talking about the content, the word, the message of what we are going to speak. And so taken together, this word apologia and the word lagas tell us that we are supposed to be prepared to give a rational account of why we believe in Christ. Now, I don't need to tell you that this goes against the Christian culture of our day which seems to elevate feeling above thinking, emotions above sound reasoning and logic. And many people think that the best thing you can say to somebody about why they're a Christian is, well, it just feels so good to trust in Jesus. I just, it just makes me feel good. That's not a good apology. That's not a good defense. That's not a good rational argument. Peter asks us to grow beyond that. That may be where we begin, but we need to grow beyond that. It's wonderful to know that you love Jesus, but the question is, why? Well, because he first loved me. Okay, that's, that's a good beginning. You can, you can start there and explain a lot of things. But... You need to be able to tell people why it is that you are a Christian. Why it is that you are a follower of Jesus Christ. You need to be able to give a logical, rational explanation of that. And Peter is not expecting that his readers will be able to answer all possible criticisms. But he's telling us that a good reasoned explanation in the face of criticism will go a long way toward removing objections and misunderstandings even if it doesn't fully answer the exact criticism that is raised. Because many times, as you know, criticisms are not all that rational themselves. Sometimes they're very irrational. And sometimes if you get off on a rabbit trail trying to track down every element of the criticism, which in itself is not rational, you really are not doing something profitable there. But if you come back with with logical, well-reasoned truth, it's amazing how God may use that to dispel the fuzzy thinking of that other person. What Peter is telling us is that our Christian witness is better telt than felt. I'm sure you've heard that saying, haven't you? That it, that is the Christian life, salvation, is better felt than telt. Well, I'm glad the Lord gives us Emotions, and they do respond to truth. I'm glad the Lord gives his people joy and peace and these wonderful emotions. But when it comes to being a witness out in the world, it's not better felt than telt. It's better telt than felt. You can't really explain why you feel a certain way, but you can explain why you believe a certain way.
And thirdly, there should be alert flexibility. We're to do this to everyone who asks. Everyone who asks. And the word asks is an informal term. It, it speaks more of conversation than a formal court trial. And we're to do this to everyone who asks, not just to the prosecuting attorney or court official who has arrested us and put us on trial. There may be those kinds of situations, but that's not primarily what Peter has in view. It's very evident. We are to have this kind of answer to everyone who asks, whether in public or in private, whether in court or whether in a hostile environment on the job or at school, or whether this is a, an interested neighbor and the situation is not so hostile at all. But in any one, in every one of these situations, whoever it is who is approaching you about the Christian faith, seize the opportunity and give a logical explanation as to why you believe what you believe. And we are to do all of this with godly optimism. You are to give a reason for the hope that is in you. The hope that is in you. Now, hope and faith are very closely related. And you really can't have hope apart from faith. And in some ways, hope is sometimes almost a a synonym for faith. But there is another element to it. It really is the confident expectation that is based upon strong assurance. In other words, solid faith produces confidence. It produces optimism. And Peter anticipates that this is going to be so obvious to others that they're going to want to know why we have it. How can you have such serenity of soul, such joy in the face of difficulty and trial and upheaval? How can you be so calm when I'm falling apart? How can you be so confident when my life is just filled with worry? Peter anticipates that that's the kind of opportunity that the Lord will open for us to be able to witness for him. And we need to be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks us a reason for the hope that is in us. You understand, therefore, that Second-hand faith isn't going to do in this situation. Second-hand religion. Borrowed from your parents and your church and the people that you know. And you believe what they believe. What do you believe? I believe what the preacher believes. That's not going to work. The neighbor who asks you or the, the person on the job who is being critical of you, doesn't care what your preacher believes. They want to know what you believe and why. Why do you believe what your preacher preaches? And it's because of the hope that is in you. Because joy and confidence contrast with fear and anxiety and hopelessness. And Christians' lives and attitudes, Peter expects, will be so different from those in the world around us as to arouse curiosity and interest in our Christian faith. Please explain to me what it is that you believe that makes such a difference in your life. A quiet, godly optimism. 
And therefore, we should realize that what's taking place right now, the, the economic turmoil in the country in which we live, Christians ought to view this with optimism and with an eye toward additional opportunities to witness. And the upheaval that may be taking place in the political realm today, and we find many people around us, even many who profess to be Christians, are just all up in a tizzy about what might happen, fears and apprehensions, and oh dear, oh dear, oh dear, oh dear. And what we're supposed to convey is confidence and optimism and serenity. Enjoy. And that contrast will open many doors of opportunity for us to witness for the Lord. And the third thing that Peter tells us we need to have is courtesy. Just simple courtesy. Always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness. And fear. You know, Peter emphasizes these characteristics a lot in his epistle. Meekness. Quietness. Maybe that's because by his natural disposition, Peter really wasn't that way, was he? He had to learn this. Peter was the bold, brash, speak first, think afterwards kind of guy. Always pushing himself in. Always asserting himself. Aggressive. Putting his foot in his mouth. And Peter says, that's not the way to do it. You must learn to do this with meekness and fear, that is, respect. Meekness, which as we know is quietness, humility, gentleness, the opposite of being overbearing, intrusive, domineering. We quietly state what we believe. And trust God to give people ears that want to hear it. If they don't, we don't do this. We don't beat down the door and make them listen. (laughs) Because if God doesn't open their ears and give them a desire, they're not going to hear it anyway. And all we're going to do is create additional barriers to the gospel. We've got to take into account what Jesus said in Matthew 7, 6. Do not give what is holy to the dogs, nor cast your pearls before swine, lest they trample them under their feet. And turn and tear you in pieces. Now we all know that's there. The problem is I think we sometimes think it's our responsibility to figure out who are the dogs and the swine. And actually I don't know that it's so much our responsibility to do that. If we will follow Peter's instructions, I think God himself is going to sort that out for us. And he's going to identify the ones who are not dogs and not swine. Because he's going to bring them to us and give them a genuine desire, a genuine curiosity, a genuine interest in what we have to say. And in that situation, we'll be able to speak to them with a gentle and quiet spirit. And because they want to hear, they will listen. And God may very well use that powerfully. Meekness and then fear. And the fear here is probably respect toward them. The word fear, which can mean reverence or respect, 
can be toward God, but since the meekness is primarily with other people in view, I would take it that the word fear is also primarily with other people in view, and therefore should be understood in this context as respect. We are to speak to everybody with a quiet, gentle, meek spirit and a respectful demeanor, a respectful approach, a respectful attitude. Kind of like Christ, sounds like to me. And we're learning, therefore, that the manner of our witness is as important as the content. Not just enough to know. Some people are all prepared. Well, they can give the reason. They can give several dozen reasons to people who don't even want to know. And they'll do it regardless of the fact that they don't want to know. Not very effective. Not very effective. The manner of our witness is as important as the content. In fact, we're learning, I think, that undue aggression often causes more harm than good. It just erects additional barriers, which God the Holy Spirit is able to tear down. But we shouldn't be building them by disregarding what the Bible tells us. But we should be gentle and courteous and sensitive to others. And when we do that, number one, it reflects sound theology. This is how people who believe in the sovereignty of God ought to act, right? We don't believe that we have to force opportunities, that we have to wring decisions out of people, that we have to make it happen. We understand that we can't do that. We can't make it happen. God hasn't called upon us to do that. He's called upon us to bear a faithful witness, and he has reserved to himself the results of that witness. He's the one who's got to make it happen. This reflects a sound theology. And it certainly reflects Christ-likeness. In fact, we're learning here that we can manufacture enmity through discourteous, overbearing, and abusive speech. We can make enemies of the very people that we say we want to win, but we sure don't act like it. We can make enemies of the people that we say that we love. We love their souls, but are brash, intrusive, overbearing, proud, Aggressive spirit doesn't communicate very much of genuine love and respect for them. And I think we need to realize that this also very much applies to the political realm. I've talked to you about this lately, and I believe that Christians ought to exercise their citizenship privileges and responsibilities. We ought to vote. We ought to disseminate true information. We ought to try to be careful not to to be guilty of passing on lies and slander, by the way. A lot of that going on. But we ought to be involved. We ought to be interested in truth and try to ferret out truth. But we need to always do it with a respectful tone. I'm grieved when I hear Christians who talk about people who have a different political opinion, as if they are stupid, as if they are enemies, as if they are no good devils, and just tear them down and demean them. You're just making a potential enemy 
for the gospel out of maybe close to half of the people in America. You know, we're pretty well divided in this country. Our first responsibility is as a Christian, not as a United States citizen. That's a second responsibility. But our first responsibility as a Christian, as a representative of Jesus Christ, as a citizen of his kingdom. And our first responsibility, therefore, is to comport ourselves as Christians in every area of life. Yes, even in the political area. We should be active. We should speak out. We should, we should um, exercise the privileges and, and uh, responsibilities that have been given to us as citizens. But we must always do so in a Christ-like spirit always with a meek and gentle and respectful tone. So some practical advice in closing to how to be a good witness, and we've learned the three keys to it. They are number one, courage, number two, preparation, and number three, courtesy. And some practical advice now as you try to prepare yourself. I would say number one, Prepare yourself for conversation as you look for God to give you opportunities to to enter into it. Prepare yourself for conversation. And maybe a good way to do that is just take a good solid text in the Bible and prepare yourself to be able to explain what that means. And then ask God to give you somebody to explain it to. Take a text like Isaiah 53.6. Can you explain that? All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. That's a wonderful gospel text. You can, you can explain a lot of gospel truth there. And important things such as man's sinful condition, his estrangement from God, why he needs a Savior, and then what God has done to save sinners in Jesus Christ. And just take a text like that and, and familiarize yourself with it and and uh, commit it to memory and, and learn how to explain it. Maybe talk to Christian friends about it and get yourself ready. Prepare yourself. Prepare yourself for conversation and pray for God to give you the opportunity. So prepare a conversation. Number two, maintain an attitude of worship. Remember, courage depends upon sanctifying Christ as Lord in your heart. So you're going to have to maintain an attitude of worship, not just on Sunday morning, but all throughout the week. You need to start the day that way. You need to to ask God to help you to keep your heart focused upon Christ and in fellowship with him and an attitude of worship toward his greatness and holiness all throughout the day so that you will be ready. Number three, be alert for God-given opportunities because they, they actually come to us more often than we realize. And when we're not alert, we, they just slip by and they're gone. We missed them and then we, we wish we had been more alert and better prepared. So be alert for God-given opportunities. Look for when God opens the door. Maybe just a crack. All right? Gently push on that cracked door and see what happens. Gently respond to potential openings. If it doesn't swing open further, back off. But if it does, plunge ahead.
give a reason for the hope that lies within you. Be prepared to give a defense. And ask God to bless your efforts to the salvation of souls. Shall we pray? O Lord, we are your children, bought at such great price. And Father, your Spirit has given us a desire to see others come to know Christ. Your Spirit has given us a burden for our friends and relatives, our children, other members of our family, the people that we work with, the people in our neighborhood. But so very often, O Lord, we just don't seem to know how to approach these issues. Father, forgive us for giving in too easily. And help us, O Lord, to learn from this text, these words of Peter that are so insightful and so practical. Lord, may we realize that many times it's because we are walking at a guilty distance and we haven't freshly sanctified Jesus Christ as Lord in our hearts. And therefore, we are unprepared and missing wonderful opportunities. Lord, give us such a burden for souls that we fear walking in sin, walking out of close fellowship with you. Give us such a burden for others that we are drawn close to you and are looking for every opportunity and eagerly seizing those opportunities that you give us. And Lord, bless these efforts to the salvation of souls and to the honor and glory of Christ, we pray. Amen.